All right. Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22, verse 28, says, Remove not the ancient landmark which thy fathers have set. And then in chapter 23, again, verse 10, Remove not the old landmark, enter not into the fields of their fatherless. For their Redeemer is mighty, and he shall plead their cause with thee. So tonight is why study history? Why study history? Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege we have to open your precious word. We thank you that we have a, though your, your word is not a, just a history book, but it does give us an accurate accounting of the history of your dealings with people, nations, and your chosen people, and uh, Christians of this dispensation as well. And we thank you, Father, that demonstrates to us who you are and your love for mankind. We pray tonight that we be encouraged and challenged and encouraged in our uh, study of history, that we might remember where we've come from, and it would encourage us in our outlook for the future and renew our purpose to why we are here and challenge us to faithfulness of, as those that have gone before us. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible says here, renew not the ancient landmark. Uh, the word ancient means long duration, antiquity, something that is futurity, forever, everlasting, or perpetual. Uh, the, the, the word landmark means, has the idea of a limit measured at. You know, I remember going with Dad one time, we were walking up in the woods uh, on the side of the ridge, and he, one day he said, now, the, the corner stake is supposed to be right here around this tree. We got looking around, digging around a little bit, and we saw this metal stake on an angle driven alongside of a big oak tree. Well, that was kind of a corner. That was a landmark. That was a landmark. It was a measure, a limit. And, and the Bible says, you know, we're not to renew those ancient landmarks. Now, there's property landmarks. There's recipe landmarks. Think about this. Ladies, you probably this this maybe not this is common nowadays as it was in past generations. You asked your mom or your grandma, "How did you make such and such?" She says, "I don't know. A little pinch of this, a teaspoon or so of this, and you know a little bit of this and a little bit of that." Yeah, well, yeah, you're supposed to follow that, right? Well, you have a recipe. Do you have it written down? No, I just do it in my head. You know, many recipes that were not, are not written down are often lost to the next generation. Uh, they, you know, you might go home and guess and experiment and try this and try that until you progress to maybe some semblance of what you remember grandma's biscuits were like. If you had a recipe, you could start making grandma's biscuits that would probably taste the same as grandma's biscuits, and then you might be able to experiment and try and improve them. That's what landmark people 
give us the ability to start where somebody else Sanders has been a missionary in Africa for how many years? 20 some? 20, 20 some years. Him and I were talking one day at the house. I think it was the last time they were here. And we were talking about the, you know, the, 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 the African nations being behind, uh, not as modern and, and, and advanced as the, the, the Western nations and, you know, not as civilized. And he said the reason is simple. They don't write anything down. They don't write anything down. So when one monarch or whatever takes over from another, they start from scratch just like the other one did. You see, our, our forefathers, when they, when they decided to, to, uh, to form a government for our nation, you know what they did? They went to the written records of various forms of government and studied the histories, the written records of those governments to see how things work. And then from that, gave us not a democracy, but a republic. By the people, for the people. We've become a democracy. In fact, I think we're becoming a monarchy. I think we're becoming a, I'm not sure what we're becoming. Huh? A oligarchy. Um, and you know why that is? Because we have forsaken our history. We've forsaken our history. See, history is, the definition of history is acts, ideas, or events well, that will or can shape the course of the future. See, what you know or what you are taught is going to shape your future. And so... As we think about that tonight, in Exodus 17, verse 14, the Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for a memorial in a book, and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. So he tells, the, the Lord tells Moses to write this down in a book, because I don't want your people to forget it. I want you written down. They might learn to learn from that. So history, and I want to notice several things that history does for us. And of course, you know, again, the Bible is not a history book, but it is an accurate accounting of the history of God and his dealings with man. And it's a revelation of God as well. But history reveals, you know, this history reveals the person of God. In, 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 and I want to notice several things that, that we see, and, and of course, you know, everything that the Bible says <coughs> has come to pass or will come to pass. But go to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And all this is written down for us, so it's a historical record. Deuteronomy 28, verse 52, or verse 58, I'm sorry. And, and I'm not going to read all this for the sake of time, but he said that, if thou wilt observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, so here's a written record, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God. Verse 61. And every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of this law 
them will the Lord bring upon thee until thou be destroyed. So if you don't, if you don't remember this, this is what's going to happen to you. Uh, look at chapter 29, verse 16. For ye know how we have dwelt in the land of Egypt, and how we came through the nations which ye passed by. Ye have seen their abominations and their idols, wood and stone, silver and gold, which were among them. Lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe, whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations, these nations. Lest there should be among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And it come to pass, when he heareth the words of this curse, that he will bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in, my, in the imagination of mine heart, to add drunkenness to thirst. The Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him. The Lord shall blot out his name from under heaven, and the Lord shall separate him out unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book. And so that the generation to come of your children, and so this is why it's written, so the generation to come of your children that shall rise up after you, and the stranger that shall come from a far land, shall say, when they see the plagues of that land, and the sickness which the Lord hath laid upon it, and that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning, that is not sown, nor beareth, nor any grass groweth therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboam, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Even all nations shall say, Wherefore hath the Lord done thus unto this land? What meaneth the heat of this great anger? Then men shall say, Because they have forsaken the God, the Lord God of our father, of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they knew not, and whom he had not given unto them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land to bring upon it all the curses that are written in this book. And so we see here, you know, some things about God that are revealed to us through, that have been revealed to us, you know, that he's declared in his word that has been demonstrated down through history to be true. Now, you see, God told Israel, when you go into the Canaan land, you utterly destroy Canaanites. All those ites that are in the land, you're to utterly destroy them. And the reason he told them to utterly destroy is, is because of the wickedness and the abominations that they committed. They had filled the land with their filthiness, even like Sodom and Gomorrah. It wasn't that God hated the Canaanites, it's, it's that they were given over to reprobation. You know, every kind of perversion and moral depravity was being practiced in the land before Israel took possession of it. And God said destroy it. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah. It's like a state of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, it's obvious that God didn't hate them because there's historical accounts also of those that lived in there who got saved. Rahab. One. And of course, they're on Ruth. So these are historical accounts, but it demonstrates that God is holy, God is just, God is equal, God is, is impartial. He's not partial. He's not a respecter of persons. Because you know what he's telling us here in this chapter is, look Israel, if you go into that land and you worship and serve their gods and you commit the wickedness that's being committed there, I'm going to drive you out too. I'm going to make this land a wilderness, a barren desert. 
And for thousands of years, Israel, the land of Israel, laid in waste. I mean, there were some Arabs in there just monkeying around, basically all they do. And it was a wasteland. It was arid and dry. That's all it was until 1948. And the children of Israel started moving back in, digging wells and irrigating and moving rocks and making farmland. And, and you know, one writer says you would, see, you would see an Arab with a camel plowing with a makeshift plow. And a little farther away, you'd see an Israeli with an American tractor plowing and just not very far apart. So you would see something from a thousand years ago and then you'd see a modern. See, these Israelis turned that desert land into a beautiful paradise in a few short years. But God said, look, if you forsake me, I'm going to turn it into a desert and a wasteland. And I'm going to drive you out. See, God is holy. God is not a respecter of persons. This is the thing we see here. We, we, we can stand from history because the children of Israel were driven out. Look at Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. Joshua 4, verses 1 through 6. We find again where he's... Here, Joshua was told to make a memorial. <clears throat> Joshua 4, 1 to 6 says, It came to pass, when all the people were clean, passed over Jordan. The Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every man, a tribe of man. Command ye them, saying, Take ye hence out of the midst of the Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm. Twelve stones, ye shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. Then Joshua called the twelve men, whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every tribe of man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. Take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask, their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Look at verse 21. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then shall ye shall let your children know, saying, Israel command over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried out the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, and that you might fear the Lord your God. You see, God says, look, I want you to take out of that river some evidence that this river parted and dried up so you can go across. So generations from now, your children said, hey Moses, or hey Joshua, or hey, you know, whoever, hey Dad, what's that pile of stones about? Grandpa, what's that Palestine about? Well, son, we were coming out of Egypt. God did divide the Red Sea. He destroyed all the Egyptians. Then we came to this Jordan, and it was overflowing its banks. I just want you to know how mighty God is. Because he divided that sea, because there's the evidence of those, or the river. Those stones come out of the middle of that river. 
See, this was a reminder. A teaching tool to the children or the generations to come. And so it reveals the person of God. It also reveals the nature of man. Of course, we have an accurate accounting of the history of man. Genesis 1, man was created in the image of God, made he man. In our likeness, God made him. Uh, He had the ability to worship, a relationship with God, to have fellowship with God. And and this was unique to man. Man was the crowning point of of creation. And uh, uh, Proverbs 8.31 says that, that God says that His delights were with the sons of men. But it reveals to us the nature of man, the sin nature of man. You know, Genesis 3, man is given the opportunity to exercise the power of choice. What does he do? He disobeys. And we know Romans, the, the rest of the story, Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. All because of a choice to reject the counsel of God against himself. Death passed upon all men for the law of sin. And ever since that time, man has demonstrated his sin and rebellion against God. Ever since. By Genesis 6, Every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's how the Bible describes mankind. What a terrible description. Genesis 7, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and the rest of the world was judged by a worldwide flood. Noah comes off the ark, begins to multiply, and he's told to multiply and replenish the earth. That means to scatter out, to go all over the face of the earth. But they decide, Genesis 11, we're going to build a tower that reaches the heaven and make a name for ourselves. Of course, God confines their languages and they have forced to scatter. In Exodus, God, that man is given the law of God to govern the life of the nation of Israel to demonstrate clearly what is right and what is wrong. You know what the combination of that is? The greatest injustice. That was ever committed in mankind. They broke their own law in which they prided themselves and crucified the fulfillment of the law. See, man has demonstrated, and history gives us an accurate record, that man is wicked. Man is wicked. Why don't you notice the third thing here? History enables us to advance in knowledge and wisdom. Go to Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18. <clears throat> Proverbs 18. Verses 1 2. Through desire, a man, having separated himself, seeketh and intermeddleth with all wisdom. A fool hath no delight in understanding, but hath his heart may discover itself. The Bible says here, through desire, a man, having separated himself, seeketh. That word seeketh means he searches out. And the word intermeddleth means to expose or lay bare, or you might say to reveal. And you could maybe say even to prove. 
So a man who separates himself that seeks an intermeddle with wisdom, you know, we have when, you know we have the you know you have the idea when one intermeddles, you know, he's 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 pushing himself into something to find out, you know, uh, maybe to find something out. Well, here it says he intermeddleth with wisdom, and he seeketh it. So. I don't believe it's talking about a bad thing. I think it's talking about a man who is searching the truth out and 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 working to prove it in his own life to advance himself, to advance himself. We have examples of this in history. Um, how many times did uh, Thomas Edison try and try and try and try and try and try to get a light bulb? You know, one example, I think a good example of this is, you know, the Jews, the Jews were known for their advanced medical understanding throughout history. Even to the point that during the Middle Ages, sometimes they were accused of quackery, and, but they were very advanced over other civilizations. But they had a reason for that. They were given a head start. Because they had the Bible. In Numbers 11, 19 verse 11, it says, He that touches the dead body of man shall be unclean seven days. And because of the written record of the Jewish people uh, and the Old Testament scriptures, uh, they understood what makes good hygiene, uh, good health, hygiene, and you know, and they lived longer, and uh, they multiplied faster. Um, let me let me just demonstrate this a little bit for you. This is book is called None of These Diseases by S. I. McMillan, an M.D. and David Stern, M.D.s. One of them was a, I'm not sure if both of them. One of them was a. Uh, uh, a missionary in some part of the world, I can't remember anyway. But he says this, quote, Imagine you have a time machine, you can travel to anywhere at any time. One day you set time from May 1847, and the destination is Vienna, Austria, capital of Habsburg Empire. Vienna has been home to Mozart, Muller, Beethoven, and Brahms. Venice, Vienna is thoroughly modern 19th century city, the world's leading medical center. When you arrive at Vienna General Hospital, the morning mist is lifting from the immersed courtyard, walks crisscross azalea field flower beds. Young man wearing a black suit and top hat heads for the entrance of the hospital. Mumbling as he walks, he is visibly upset. You follow him through the front door of the hospital building. You wince. The ward smells like a dead animal. Nurses bustle through the corridors. Muffled moans, coughs, and sobs are punctuated by a rare shriek of pain. You turn the corner and you have entered the morgue. On the other side of the autopsy table, five medical students stand with their sleeves rolled up. On the table is a dead body of a young woman. Your preoccupied friend is the obstetrician, Dr. Ignaz Samuelweis. Samuelweis. He hangs up his coat, top hat, rolls up his sleeves and asks, How many women died last night? One student speaks, three. He shakes his head. Admission, delivery, death. Is that our motto? One out of six women lying in our delivery beds end up lying on this autopsy table. I cannot accept this. 
the women die, and we have no idea why. Why? Why? After the autopsies, and I'm skipping some of this, after the autopsies, the students merely rinse their bloody hands in water, wipe them on a dry wag, and walk off to the maternity ward for morning rounds. Their hands and clothes stink of rotting flesh. And to make a long story short, they're going to examine these women. And this is a standard practice throughout Europe. None has ever even thought of the existence of bacteria, much less seen them. Scientists usually blame epidemics on vague atmospheric conditions, quote-unquote, or cosmic telluric influences, unquote. In a moment, that is about to change. Suddenly, Semmelweis stops the rounds. He orders the interns to wash their hands. The interns laugh nervously, thinking at first it's a joke. But Dr. Semmelweis is not a joker. He is serious, intensely serious. Someone finds a basin, and he watches each one wash in heavily chlorinated water. He sniffs their hands to make sure the smell is gone. Then he announces his theory. He suggests the cause of labor fever, which is killing these women, may be on their hands. Maybe their hands are carrying labor fever from the dead to the living. The so-called modern medical care may actually be killing the women. And to us, this seems obvious, but again, we're in 1800s. But no one suspects that diseases can be transmitted from one person to another. And so he, he gives us theory. And, and then he causes us to wash. And here's what happens. History books tell us what happened next. Labor fear fevered virtually disappeared from the ward. In just three months, the death rate fell from 18% to 1%. He had made the most important discovery in the history of medicine, isolating dead bodies from healthy people. But this idea did not originate with Semmelweis. 3,000 years earlier, God said in Numbers chapter 19, verse 11. Numbers 19 and verse 11. Uh... He that toucheth any dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days. What did that mean? It meant that if you touch a dead body, you have to leave your home, leave your job, and spend an entire week alone in the surrounding desert. That's what it meant. The ancient Hebrews avoided becoming off-limits at all costs. They did not touch the dead body, and the disease-causing bacteria died with the corpse. What a contrast from the customs of Egypt, where Moses spent the first 40 years of his life. Egyptians made mummies of dead bodies. Okay, there's a textbook description here, but I don't think you want to read it. or you, I don't think you want me to read it because it would sicken you. But during the embalming process, many people put their hands into the dead bodies. The germs that killed the corpse covered their hands. They went out and spread the germs to the market, the friends, and even to the families. No wonder the Egyptians were a people of epidemics. But Moses ignored that because God prohibited his people from touching the dead. And you see, you know, the Jewish people had a advance, um, had advanced learning. Why? From the scriptures. And of course, their, their history has proven them to be right. And he gives four things that they were supposed to do. First of all, to rinse off the germs in running water. The biblical message was water was showered from a hyssop branch, and that hyssop branch, this is all in 19, uh, Numbers 19, hyssop contains an antiseptic thymol, the active ingredient in Listerine. So it kills germs. There's time involved to assure a thorough job. 
The washings were repeated over a period of seven days. Between washing, germs were killed by sun and by drying. So that's why the seven days. Of course, the antiseptic soap, hyssop contains that antiseptic thymol. And then there was to be vigorous scrubbing to dislodge germs from crevices. Again, the biblical method he describes here is the soap, quote-unquote, contains cedar oil. It's a skin irritant to encourage scrubbing to get it off. So the soap can also contain wool fibers, make it an ancient equivalent of lava soap. Maybe we ought to buy lava soap. Uh, once the soap was on you, you had to scrub it to get it off. And when you scrubbed that to get it off, you also got off the bacteria. You see, God had already described in detail the method of hand washing. And it stopped. The spread of disease. In fact, during World War II, he writes here, and during World War II, some hospitals ran out of rubber gloves. So the doctors carefully washed their hands and continued their surgeries with no bad side effects because they washed their hands. And, of course, there's much more we could say about medical practices that are talk, spoken of in the Bible. We'll see this, this written record gave the Jewish people an advantage. History also enables us to learn from the lives of others. Look at Psalm, and I'm going to look at two passages here, Psalm 78, Psalm 78, and verses 1 through 8. Psalm 78, 1 through 8 says, Give a ear, O my people, to my law. Incline my, your ears to the lords of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which ye have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and his spirit was not steadfast with God. So you see here, they're supposed to pass on from generation to generation their history. Their testimony of them, their relationship with God and God's dealings with them, they were supposed to pass it on from generation to generation. So they're going to be continually getting a history of who they are and who their God is. Do you ever wonder why the nation of Israel is still, still so distinct as a people? This is why. This is why. It's because the, the written record that will never be destroyed. You know, many historical records have been destroyed. And they have tried to destroy this one. But, of course, God promises it will never be destroyed. Even though they are the most hated people throughout all time, hands down, no questions asked. I mean, in 1947, as they began to move in, and, and, and the UN gave them a, a petition deal where Arabs could live there and Jews could live there with them. But the Arab nations all around them said, we'll never allow that. We are going to drive them into the sea. Though vastly outnumbered, vastly outnumbered and even had some of their arms taken from them by the British 
Jews, those feeble Jews, some who were Holocaust survivors, defeated, in time, defeated those Arabs. And even pleaded with the Arab peoples that were there to stay and help them build the country. But the chieftains want nothing. with They want no agreement with Israel. They want them destroyed. The Arabs do. You see, this is why. Because their history. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. But their history also is instructive to us. 1 Corinthians 10. Paul uses it when writing to the church at Corinth. He says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant that how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that rock, spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were written, these things were our examples to the tent. We, we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be your idolaters as were some of them, as is written, they people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition, for our warning, for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the world are come. So it's written for us, upon whom we're living in this world right now, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who not suffer you to be tempted above all that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that you may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge you what I say. You see, this is the history lesson to us that transcends time and it demonstrates to us the consequences of idolatry. And idolatry is putting anything before God. Anything. And it will cause you to forsake the counsel of the man of God. This is what they did in Exodus 32.1. It says, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods which should go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. We don't even know what's become of him. We don't even know where he is. Then they resorted to the satisfaction of their flesh. Verses eight and nine. Verse seven or yeah, verse seven or verse seven says, You be idolaters for some of them, as it is written, they people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So they, they indulged themselves with appetites with gluttony and drink and dulled their senses that removed their inhibitions then followed that with sexual pleasure. Verse 8, neither let us commit fornication. Some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Then they spoke against God and blasphemed his name. Neither let us tempt Christ. Some of them also tempted were destroyed of stores. Neither murmur ye. Some of them also murmured and were destroyed, uh, they were destroyed of serpents, I'm sorry, and then destroyed of the destroyer. And, 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 and then he says, look, this is written for our learning. Don't do what they did. This is where idolatry leads. This is what idolatry looks like. And you know what the first thing they said was? We don't know what's come of this Moses. 
Moses told him where he was going. He told him. There's sometimes people we get we get tired of waiting on God. So we start looking for answers in other places. That's idolatry. That's what that is. And see, the history, what this history is, is a warning to us. He says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. And then finally, the history of those who have gone before challenges us to be faithful. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Now some commentators believe that verses 36 through 38 refer to church age saints. That it's really a prophetic statement. Some historians believe that. I know one particular believe that, but you know, again, I don't know. It doesn't tell us that. But here we see in Hebrews 11, verse 32, What shall I more say? The time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sore, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in flight, fight, turned to flight the armies. Of, and all this is through faith. You know, if the children of Israel would have had faith in God, Moses would have returned. They knew where he went. He told them where he was gone. If they didn't have faith, he would have and just waited. That's what faith is, waiting on God. Verse 35. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trials, schools, cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Wherefore, seeing also we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, this is the witnesses that have gone before us, that have trusted the Lord and, 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 and proved Him faithful. So, so let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so, your know, history challenges us to be faithful. The history of those that have gone before us, the witness and testimony of those that have gone before us. You know, we don't know what the future holds. We don't know when the Lord's going to come. We don't know if we're going to have camp this year or not. But you know what? You know what we need to do? We need a plan that we are. And if the Lord wills, we'll have it. We need a plan that we're going to continue to, we're going to have our sweetheart back. We need a plan that we're going to have our missions conference. But you know, the Lord might come before that. 
or something may happen that we may not be able to have it. But, but until that does, we need to plan and continue to serve God just as if we would if we, if we knew he wasn't coming. That's what it is to live by faith. And see, that's what these people did. Many of these people didn't know if there was going to be another day. They didn't know if they are going to live or die. Of course, it's spoken of Daniel here, prone to the lions. Daniel didn't know if he's going to live or die. But you know what Daniel did? He prayed just like he did before time. See, these are the testimonies that have gone before. And as you read about Baptists in history from the time of Christ till today, these people endured the same things that just go by different names. There's just different people involved. But they endured all the hardships and the trials that we endured. And they challenge us. And as we read the scriptures, and as we read the scriptures, we can learn from the mistakes of others and not repeat those mistakes. And we can also learn from the wisdom of others to advance in that wisdom. Somebody said this, quote, learn from the mistakes of others. You won't live long enough to make them all yourself, unquote. I thought that was pretty good. See, that's what history does for us. It teaches us. Now, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I tried to find it today. But it seems to me Karl Marx or Lenin or one of those communists said, if you can make a people forget where they've come from, they'll forget where they're going. Why is there such a great push in our nation to rewrite history? Why is there, has been, you know, this has been going on for years, why has there been such a rewriting of our history? They've rewritten. In most of your school books, don't give an accurate accounting of Christian history. The heroes are the reformers. Even the good Christian school curriculums. Even Baptist curriculums. They give more praise to the reformers than they do the Baptists. Because it's been all rewritten. So, as we consider, you know, this Baptist history conference coming up, I encourage you to avail yourself of the information that will be made available. He has some excellent books that he has written about our history, about the founding of our nation and how Baptists influence our nation. And uh, But it will encourage you. It will encourage you in your walk, Lord, and it will challenge you. You know, these men, many of these men gave their lives so that we could have what we have today. I don't know. Some of us might have to give our lives to try and preserve it. We don't know. But might the Lord help us to be faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly